It's been a wonderful service this morning, worshiping the Lord, and now we look forward to some time we get to spend in the Word of God today. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the end of John chapter 7, and we're going to go today from the last verse of John 7 into the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. We have been studying John's gospel, which carries this theme, life in Jesus, the Son of God. And we're going to celebrate that this coming week as we look forward um, both to our Good Friday service and then also to our Easter service as we remember the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who died and rose again to give us that life. And we're going to look here today in the book of John and we're going to see the justified mercy that Jesus displays here in this passage. And today we have before us a text an incredible text that shows us the, the incredible mercy and grace and authority of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we have displayed for us yet again the incredible strength of expository, verse-by-verse preaching of the Scripture. Because honestly, folks, that's the greatest way to deal with what the Bible says, to go through it verse-by-verse verse together. That's why we make such a priority of that here. It is also a surefire way to deal with everything that God intends for us to deal with in his word. And sometimes those things that we deal with when we study the scriptures aren't necessarily the text themselves. Sometimes they surround the text. And so the passage that you have before us today, uh, this is one of those passages, one of those texts where there's some things that surround the passage that we need to deal with before we jump into it today. So depending on the the translation or the the equivalent that you're holding there in your lap today or looking at on your phone, you may see a note on this passage, and that note may read something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811, and it may place brackets around the text. And this, unsurprisingly, if you have that in your translation there in front of you, may lead you to some questions. Maybe it makes you wonder what it means, or perhaps you think, well, you know, it's not really nice for someone to put this in there and make me ponder if this and possibly other scriptures aren't accurate. But in reality, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about just that today, the the reliability of the scripture that you hold in your hands. The first part of our time today, I'm going to take several minutes here, and, and I'm going to deal with some things in the area of what we call textual criticism. Now, that's not being critical of the Bible, okay? What we're talking about that today is the process by which we seek to ascertain the original wording of the New Testament and the, and the Scriptures. I assume that if you're here today, you love the Bible, and you love the Word of God, you love the Word of God and you want to follow God. And so I assume that since you're here, and I, since I've assumed that you like the Bible and you love God's Word, that you at least want to know some things, at least a few things, about how we got it into our hands today. And so I'm going to, to not make this a college class today, okay? I'm not going to make this a theology class or a, or heaven forbid, a Greek class here today, okay? Um, all, but... I want to discuss the textual background of this passage and why it is that your Bible might have those remarks. I want to talk about the history of that and then why it is, where, why this passage is where it is and why we, see, why we will study it today. Okay? Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing our time today. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity now we have set aside to study your word together today. And we ask that over the next few minutes you would meet with us, you would use your word in our hearts and our lives. And that you would truly convict us of our sin, 
You would show us who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. You would call us again to new life in yourself. Lord, for one who may be here today who has never trusted in you as their Savior, you would show them their need of Jesus Christ. To Christians today, you would show us the need we have to a continued dependence on you for everything we have in life that we may live to the glory and honor of your kingdom as you have called us to walk in sanctified ways. Lord, we ask that everything we say and do would lift you up and honor you today. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we prepare to jump into this passage today, I want to give you um, first some ground-level information on manuscripts and translation, okay? And please don't uh, I see the eyes, the glazed donut eyes, okay? Trust me, I think this is a very fascinating thing. It's a very helpful thing as you begin to study the Word of God to understand how you got it in your hands. Because you understand, right, that the Bible you hold in your hands today is not the language the Bible was written in, right? If you have in front of you an English translation of the Bible, the Bible was not written in or even inspired in English. So if someone says to you, well, the such and such version was good enough for Paul and it's good enough for me, that's false, okay? He didn't hold the English Bible in his hand, okay? Instead, the Bible was written in the Old Testament in Hebrew and in the New Testament in Greek and throughout certain portions of the scripture, you also find what we call Aramaic, and as scripture tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that God inspired, that is literally breathed out his words of scripture, and he used his chosen authors to record the things that he breathed out. We read that in 2 Peter, where it talks about that the, the, these writers were carried along. Like, and the word there is like a ship on the sea by the Holy Spirit to record these things. But all the while that God did that, in his sovereignty, he also retained the different styles and tendencies of these individuals. That's why if you read the, the, the New Testament, especially, and you read the Old Testament, but you, we see it over and over again throughout the New Testament in these different men that God used, there's a certain style and a different way of writing, especially as you go back to the original languages, you can see that the way that, that John wrote is not the same way that Paul wrote, is not the same way that Peter wrote. So God in his sovereignty inspires these things, but also they retain their own individual styles. And honestly, as we study the, 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 the text, the Old Testament text has, has long been mostly settled because when Jesus, the apostles, and others were around, the Old Testament had already been written. And Jesus' frequent use of the Old Testament confirmed its authenticity in his day and beyond. However, the New Testament came about after Jesus' ascension into heaven, and we see that there's even a difference in how the New Testament is formulated. Because if you're familiar with the New Testament, you may understand then that much of the New Testament was originally written as a letter or a work addressed to certain people. You think of Paul and these letters that he wrote to specific churches, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, or you think of Luke, who wrote both a gospel and the book of Acts, and he addressed it to his friend Theophilus, right? And so, as these letters were received by those people or by those churches, people began to recognize and understand that these things that were written, they're not just really good, they're actually inspired by God. Because when you encounter the Word of God, it's something that you understand, you realize. And so, as they received these things and understood what they were, they began then to copy these things so they can be more widely distributed. And that process is a little different than it is today. Now, today, if you receive something and you're like, oh, this is really good, I want to share it with somebody else, you go down to Staples, you pay your 19 cents, you slap it on a Xerox, you hit the button, and out it pops, right? Okay? I mean, that's a pretty easy process. Well, 
In, in the first century here, in the first and second century, they, they weren't walking down to Staples and popping it on a Xerox and paying their, you know, X amount of denarii to walk out of there, right? Instead, they had to take the time to sit down with the original or a copy, and a copyist would painstakingly copy over these things word by word from the original or another copy into a new copy, and that would either be copied on animal skin or papyrus. And because of God's amazing work, we have thousands of biblical manuscripts preserved for us today, though we do not have any of the originals. In fact, there are over 5,000 copies of manuscripts from the New Testament in the original languages alone. You're talking about Greek manuscripts from these early days, there are over 5,000 of these copies. Now, if you add in some of the earliest translations into other languages from the Greek, you're left with somewhere around 24,000 ancient texts from which we derive these things. And God, remarkably, has preserved his word for us today. The volume of of these preserved manuscripts helps us then to better see what the original autograph said through this process of what we call textual criticism, of putting these manuscripts back together, these parts and pieces that we have, and comparing them that we can say, okay, this is what the original would have said. And when you compare these manuscripts to one another, you'll find that the accuracy they have to each other is 99.5%. That's pretty good, okay? In fact, um, if you were to write down all of the discrepancies that you find within these manuscripts, it wouldn't even fill a whole page of manuscript. And none of these regards any point of major doctrine. Obviously, then, There will be some differences as there were human errors that were made in copying these things down. So sometimes, you know, someone is writing along. I mean, how many of you have spell check on your computer and you can't even make it past a page without that catching something, right, as you type on the computer? They didn't have that then. So obviously, you're going to have times where where there would be an error or a mistake that was made. And so that's why we engage in this textual criticism to try to compare these things to understand where an error might have been made. Also, there are times that when a copyist would be making, writing these things down, they would remember something that was said, or they may remember uh, something that someone commented on that, and so off in the margin of one of these texts, they would write a note, right? They would write a note about this, or I, I something they remembered. Well, the next time a copyist comes along, they begin reading through that, and they go, oh, well, he left that out. And so what do they do? They take that, and they put it into the text where they think it should go. It's an honest mistake. It was nothing malicious. It was just a misunderstanding of, well, that was a marginal note that wasn't supposed to be included in the scriptures. And over the years, some major textual variants came out of early church history. And the oldest manuscripts that we have come from a place known as Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria is a warm, arid climate. And what it did is it preserved these manuscripts that were kept there. Another major family then that came later towards the east is the Byzantine family, and these were, these were manuscripts that were copied at Constantinople in western Turkey. And what you find between Alexandria and the Byzantine texts is, is two major points here, two major strengths. Those coming from Alexandria are the oldest texts that we have. 
They were preserved. Uh, they, they, there's not as many of them, but they, they are very, very close to when the originals were written. However, the, the Byzantine texts are a, a family of many, many texts. There are, there, are, there, are, there are way more of these than there are of the Alexandria texts. However, the problem is they're a much younger family. They were, they were written much later. They were copied much later from the original. And so... This is, where the, the, this is why the volume of proof and the age of manuscripts is an important thing when we perform textual criticism. We not only look at the, 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 the number, but we also look at the age of the manuscripts. Because if we want to determine what the Word of God says and that we trust it, we have to engage in these things. And this is what's been done for years. Men have compared the copies of the text, and, and what they do is they seek then to produce a Greek manuscript most accurate to the original and there are two major ones that have come out of this. From the Byzantine text, there was a work that was created in 1516 by a man of the name Erasmus. And this text became known as the received text. And if you're holding in your Bible, in your hands today, a King James version of the Bible, the King James is based off of this received text. Then, from the Alexandrian text in 1881, came what is called the Westcott and Hort text. And this is, the, this is a majority of what translations such as the English Standard Version and the New American Standard are based on. Now, obviously, at 99.5% accuracy to one another, we have only a few questions. And the past, this leads us to where we are today, okay? The passage before you today is one of those questions that we're not sure about. And so let's look at both sides of the evidence here, okay? So the evidence in question, and that little note that you read there, there's a greater work that went on behind the scenes that over the years... Scholars, theologians, and commentators have presented evidence. They spent countless hours, and they spilled incalculable amounts of ink regarding this passage. And here's a fascinating thing you'll find. When you open some of these commentators and these commentaries on this passage, you'll, you'll flip through, and you get to John 7 and John 7.52, and then you go to look for John 7.53, and guess what? It's not there. And sometimes it won't be there at all, or as in the case of, of many of the ones I read this week, they'll have a little note, you know, that's in the appendix, or that's in the, the excursus that we want you to read, because they're not really sure what to do with it, so they stick it somewhere else and make their comments about it there. So let's now try to briefly understand the main points that surround this passage and how even questions such as these can still reinforce our faith and the trust that we have in God's word. The, the first thing that brings this passage into question is that un, this is uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically Johannian wording. Basically, that the way this passage is written that we're going to read today does not match the way that John writes throughout the rest of his gospel. Verse 2 of chapter 8 actually shows marks of vocabulary that was typically seen in the Gospel of Luke. Also, in verse 3, the mentioning of the scribes and the Pharisees, that's out of character with John. He never mentions this group, the scribes, anywhere else in his book. So, first, you see the wording doesn't match much of what John writes. Number two, in line with that first reasoning, you will then find that some of these Old, older man, some of these manuscripts that, that, that include this do not place this passage where you and I have it today. In fact, some of those manuscripts put this, this, this event earlier in John 7. Some of them put it in John 21. And there are still others who take this and put it in the book of Luke. Which, by the way, I'm going to tell you my conclusion is I think it belongs in Luke, just personally from what I've read. Now, this disagreement 
stems from the language, but also the flow of the present passage. So the last few weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 7, and Jesus there at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the festival cycle that's taking place there, and then all of a sudden, this drops in, and it kind of seems to disrupt the flow of what is going on in the life of Jesus at this time. It, It really seems quite probable that what the event that we read here today didn't take place during the week of Tabernacles, but took place six weeks or six months later at uh, the, right before the crucifixion during the Passion Week of Jesus. And then third, as was noted, you know, in the beginning of this discussion, we have the older and therefore many consider the best manuscripts because they're closer to the original, you're going to find that those oldest and best manuscripts do not include this passage at all. This is a later thing that came along. The earliest ones that do include it mark it, indicating that there are questions surrounding its authenticity to the passage. And then lastly, you find that the earliest Greek church fathers do not address this passage. Even the ones who went verse by verse through the scriptures do not comment on the account you have here. And so we must admit from this evidence that it is quite possible this account was not originally included in John's gospel. And quite frankly, it may not have even been written by John. And I kind of told you, I don't know that it was written by John. But this shouldn't make us shy away from studying and preaching it, for just as the evidence points us to this conclusion, it also points us to another conclusion about this passage, because there's evidence here that makes it worthy of our study and our trust. Because, frankly, folks, this isn't a simple case. Textual criticism is rarely simple, okay? We see other factors at play in these verses. First, though the festival cycle of John's gospel is certainly broken up by this story, you could also argue quite easily that this does fit the present context because what has Jesus been doing? He's been teaching in the temple. And what does this passage record? That Jesus went home and he came back the next day to teach in the temple. It isn't out of the question that what John does tell us here is what we see. We we can see this happening. Second, we must recognize that in this account, we see, here a, we see here Jesus and that he is exactly in line with everything that Scripture reveals about him. So from time to time, these heretical works will pop up about Jesus or th- claim things about Jesus' life. And what you'll find time after time that they will skew Jesus in some way that doesn't match what we read throughout the rest of the New Testament. There will be several and severe inconsistencies between these false accounts and the Jesus of the Bible, but here you find no such things. Jesus' actions and words here line up with exactly who he is throughout the whole of the gospel accounts. Third, it should be noted that there is an early church father by the name of Papias who was a disciple of John, and he seemed to know this story. In fact, it's recorded that he spoke of a story that sounds very similar to this one, though it's not recorded in those early manuscripts. Also, there's a church father by the name of Augustine, who was very early himself. He also commented on this account. And then fourth, I would encourage you to remember John's own words as he closed out his gospel. In John chapter 21, verse 25, John said, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And I ask you, perhaps this is one of those other things. So what are the conclusions to? What does it all lead us to? Well, first and foremost, This leads us again to the trustworthiness of Scripture because the fact that we have so much data to study 
And the fact that we have so many manuscripts to reference and other historical events and records to correlate these things is a testimony to the work of God preserving his word for us today. God preserved his word for us today. He has given us the data we need for these hard cases. And he's given us, frankly, the brains we need to process the information. Such conclusions should not lead you to conclude that Scripture cannot be trusted. Instead, let us see God's incredible work. So secondly, regarding the passage, here is the conclusion that we rightly come to. That it cannot be proven, it cannot be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that this account is undoubtedly a part of John's gospel. We just can't prove that beyond the shadow of a doubt. However, it is undoubtedly an actual historical record of an account from the life of Jesus. Therefore, whether it happened in this passage or not, we're going to look at it here simply because it falls here within the scriptures that you and I have today. And we will be convicted by its truth of who Jesus is and how he alone provides justified mercy in the lives of all who come to him. Because what you see here is Jesus alone possesses all power and authority as God to show mercy on sinners, justifying them before the Father. So we're going to jump in here today and see this idea that John, or whoever, (laughs) shares with us that Jesus is the one who offers this mercy to sinners. He is the one who takes us before the Father, and he alone is the one who can do it. So let's jump in today and see, first of all, at the end of, of chapter 7, into verse, into verse 6 of chapter 8, the trap that is laid by the religious leaders of Israel for Egypt or for Jesus. We see Jesus' ministry here, starting in verse 53 of chapter 7. And they, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down. And taught them. We see that whether this event took place in the present account or not, it certainly reflects the type of ministry Jesus has been engaged in in the past uh, few verses here. He sat down in those outer courts of the temple, as a rabbi would do, to teach the people who came to him. At night, then, everyone departs to their homes, or if they are pilgrims there for the feast, they re- go back to the places in which they stay. But did you notice something? Jesus' retirement is quite different than those who are around him. While people went to their homes, Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate Word, and God himself has nowhere to go. He does not go home, but instead to the Mount of Olives, the the writer tells us. He is the King of kings, but has no place to call his own. And the condescension, the condescension of Jesus is truly pictured here that he gave up everything for us. He humbled himself to bring us salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 8.20, and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. He shows us what true grace looks like. Now, It is possible that Jesus spent the night on the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane, or, as is alluded to in other passages, it is possible that Jesus passed from the mountain over the ridge to the east and perhaps stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, which is what he did, by the way, during the Passion Week. Whatever the case, 
we see also his continued ministry to the people. Because he arrives again at the temple the next morning to instruct the people as they came to him, and he sits to tell them more of the things of God. And what you see here is truly the Son of Man came to seek, to save, and to serve. That is what Jesus did. And he will come again one day to rule and to reign. And as Jesus teaches on this day, we see the trap that is laid for him. We see the ongoing agenda that the religious leaders continue to take against Jesus. Let's continue on here in chapter 8. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. The animosity that the religious leaders carries towards Jesus, that's no secret. We've seen that throughout chapter 7. We saw that beginning in chapter 5. But here, it spills over into a bold-faced trap that they seek to lay for Jesus here. Jesus' teachings to other people are interrupted as what we see here, the scribes and the Pharisees crash in with this trap that they want to put before Jesus. Now, as noted in introductory information, this is the only time that this phrase, scribes and Pharisees, appears in John. Now, throughout the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll come across that phrase more often. The scribes are sometimes called lawyers. And what they were is they were experts on the law of God. They were the ones who studied the law of God. They knew the law of God. They were responsible for for writing those things down, for interpreting them. And they were responsible for teaching them to other people. And often, the scribes would belong to the Pharisaical sect of Judaism. So you have the Pharisees. The two big ones are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The scribes aren't an additional one, uh, but they would belong usually to one of those two. And most of the time, they belong to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were those who were most interested in keeping the law of God religiously to hope to gain their, uh, their acceptance before God. And today, this group has brought with them a guilty party. And by the way, I just want to say, this is never in question. This woman is guilty from the beginning. Jesus never talks about her not being guilty. It is something that is an established fact in this story. They put forth here a woman who has been caught in adultery. And they address Jesus here as teacher. Now, that's not probably a sincere statement, knowing their relationship with him. They then lay out this woman's sin and the prescribed punishment from the law of God. God was quite clear from his law that adultery was was forbidden and it was punishable by death. We read in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus condemns adultery and then made the prohibition even stronger, condemning the lustful attitude that fuels adultery just as much as the act itself. So these men have rightly identified a sinner, someone who has broken the law of God, and they have rightly prescribed what God says is going to happen in his law. But right away, I would like to point you to a problem with their case. Because adultery, by its very definition, and by what God says in his own law, involves how many people? Two. 
And how many people did they bring with them? One. Here they claim to have caught this woman in the very act of committing adultery. And so if that is the case, if what they say is true, and again, we've established she is guilty, right? We actually have to, we have to ask ourselves, well, where's the man, right? Was he faster and managed to get away? Was this catching of the woman in the middle of such an intimate act pre-planned with the man who was involved? Could that man be one of their own who is standing there accusing her that day? We don't know. But we do know his absence is suspicious. And then it should also be noted that just because God's law says this doesn't mean that even the people who are in charge of keeping it always kept it the way they should have. Could I turn your attention to the Old Testament, to the greatest king Israel ever had? His name was David. Guess what the major sin was in his life? He committed adultery. Do you read there that they stoned him to death? No. Well, why not? Right? We have to ask ourselves these questions. And from the scant records that we have from Jerusalem around this time, you don't read that people were being stoned for the sin of adultery. So why now? Why all of a sudden are they holding this standard up when they haven't been holding the standard? The reason is because the truth is they're not interested in executing true justice or really obeying God's law. They're interested in entrapping Jesus in this case. There is no need, honestly, for them to even involve Jesus in this discussion. They don't recognize Jesus as some kind of rabbi. They don't recognize Jesus as an authoritative figure. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah They don't view him as some sort of superior. They view him as an enemy. And so they seek to undermine and destroy him any time they get a chance. And so these men are so set on scoring points against Jesus, they are willing to destroy the life of a woman in order to do so. That's a horrible thing. Whether you're obeying God's law or not, and by the way, we'll talk about that in just a second, okay? The fact that their motivations here are to take down Jesus are not pure. And this is exactly what is communicated here, especially in the first part of verse 6. The writer tells us that, 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 that they said this, this they said testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. What they're doing here is they're seeking to pit Justice and mercy against each other. In their minds, those things cannot exist in the same place because either you're showing mercy or you're showing justice, right? So if Jesus confirms then that she should be stoned, he will have chosen lawful justice, right? This is what the law of God says. And in so doing, the reputation that he has gained in his ministry for mercy and compassion and grace to be shown towards sinners will be undermined and destroyed. And all those who had followed him would see that he has been discredited. That's their thinking here. Now, furthermore, they could then most likely report him to the Roman government for instigating an execution, that which is what was reserved for the Romans to carry out. However, if Jesus objected to her stoning, he would be guilty then of, not, uh, of opposing the Mosaic law. 
Jesus had claimed that he had come to fulfill the law. And so letting this woman go free would mean that he is destroying the law and thus unfit to claim to be their Messiah. And so in their minds, they've won. They've come up with the perfect trap, the airtight case. But what they don't see is that the case is already leaking. It doesn't matter to them if this woman dies in the process, they'll gain what they seek. Folks, that is exactly what sin does to us. It blinds us to everyone else we hurt in the process of our sin. It keeps us from seeing the truth of who we really are. And what we need in our lives is the conviction of God. And that is exactly what Jesus will deliver here. Look, if you will, continue on in verse 6, Jesus' response. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What you see here in verse 6, the last part of verse 6, is the deafening silence of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even dignify their sinful actions with a response. Instead, he stoops down as if he didn't hear them and begins writing on the ground. And let me tell you, every commentator I read has all of these speculations about what it is that Jesus wrote or he didn't write. But I'm going to tell you what they always say at the end. This is exactly what they say. Well, we don't really know what he wrote. But here's all the things he could have written. So I'm just going to save you the time and tell you we don't know, okay? And you know what? It's not important because God doesn't record it for us to know. What is important is for us to understand what is Jesus doing here. You see, Jesus' deafening silence is stirring up the hearts of his enemies. What you'll find out is if you let people talk long enough, they reveal their hearts. You and I, we love the sound of our own voice too much, don't we? I know I'm guilty of that. I like to hear myself talk. When there are times we need to stop and listen. We need to give people room to continue to express what's going on and eventually reveal what's really going on in their hearts. If we truly want to help, want to understand people and help them spiritually, we need to listen and draw them out. This doesn't just apply to, to a discipleship or counseling situation. This applies parents to our own children. And sometimes we're really quick, right? Because, well, that was wrong, so I need to jump in here and correct that, but we need to keep letting them talk. And keep letting them express because we may really get to the root of the issue of what's going on. And Jesus does this here. And look what happens. They oblige. Look at verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Not only do you see the deafening silence, now what you see here is the debilitating conviction that Jesus brings because the scribes and the Pharisees can't stand the silence. What you read there in verse 7, they keep asking, they keep talking, they keep trying to press the issue And they hound him with their questions on this matter. And what they're doing is they're continuing to reveal their own hatred and hypocrisy. They can't help themselves. Their need for vengeance must must be satiated. And then, all at once, Jesus rises and says one phrase and and then turns away from them. 
He says very pointedly, going after their sin and their false motives, exposing their sin and their malicious intents, that the one without sin should be the one to cast the first stone at the woman who would, that would then initiate her judgment for what she has done. Now, let us not misunderstand, this is not Jesus calling for sinless perfection, because if that were the case, no justice would ever be carried out under the law, right? Even the law of God. In the Old Testament law, specifically, one had to be free of the same sin in order to be a reliable witness to what has happened. What Jesus is doing here is he's exposing exactly what is going on. You see, these men have bloodshed on their minds when they approach Jesus not necessarily for the woman, but for him. Because they have been planning his execution ever since what we read in John chapter 5 when he healed the man on the Sabbath. And in an effort to advance this cause, they have brought this woman before Jesus. And so they are not without sin in this matter. They're not seeking to execute justice. They're trying to advance their own sinful agendas. Therefore, not one of them can rightly cast the first stone at her because it's never been about her. It's always been about Jesus. And in their minds, the impossibility of justice and mercy to live together in harmony. Jesus makes this simple statement and then returns to the ground in silence. And like an arrow in the hands of an experienced archer, the conviction hits home. The opponents gathered together cannot, in good conscience, continue their pursuit of poorly masked destruction of Jesus' credibility. But one by one, really what you see here, the picture is that they almost they slink away. They kind of walk out. Now, it should be noted here that in this verse where it says, uh, being convicted by their conscience, that in our best manuscripts that do include this pericope, they do not include that phrase, being convicted by their conscience. Now, that's certainly implied by what's going on here, that they would leave because of their conviction. And it is interesting how the group disperses. Did you notice what it says? That the older ones leave first. Why? Well, they're the ones that have the most sin to remember in their lives. They're the ones that understand According to the law of God, they would be the ones who would understand who they really are. And then once the older ones are gone, you're left with the younger ones. All of the credibility, all of the the years of experience that backed this group that came to test Jesus is gone. So therefore, the younger ones, they're not going to stand up and make a name for themselves doing this. They're going to walk away as well. There's no one there to back the play. And so now, with this inner ring of accusers now gone... The woman is left alone. It says they're in the midst. That would be in the midst of the crowd, those who, the, the people that Jesus have been teaching. She's left alone with Jesus. And what we see in these last verses is you see the new life that Jesus calls her to. In verse 10, we see the absent accusers. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are these accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? So only after all the would-be accusers have left does Jesus again return his attention to what is going on before him. And this time, he addresses the woman directly. And as we've talked about in the book of John before, this term woman is a very polite form of address to this lady. 
He asked her very simply, where are all, are all the accusers gone? Now, this is an obvious answer, but Jesus is using it to establish a point that the legal case of the woman will be dismissed because there's no one there to hold her, to, to accuse her in this right. Only Jesus could empty the area of such a vengeful group. Only his words of authority and conviction could so deftly find their mark. And now, only he as God can condemn her and her sin or grant her pardon. And here, Jesus shows us the harmony of justice and mercy in forgiveness's calling in verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the woman confirms here what Jesus has already observed, that no one is left. It is only her and Jesus in the midst. And now what Jesus does is he shows her the authority and the mercy that he possesses as God. Because Jesus, as God, is the only one who can forgive her her sin. The law condemned her to death, but Jesus forgave her this sin. Therefore, Jesus does not condemn her here. And in so doing, what Jesus is doing is he's taking her sin upon himself. I want you not to misunderstand this. Jesus is not excusing away what she has done, saying, well, you know, everyone commits adultery every once in a while. It's okay, right? He's not saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. But what he is doing instead is taking his sin, her sin on himself. Because for him to forgive her this sin meant that one day he would have to die to pay the price of that sin. That is exactly what is being communicated here. When Jesus would die on the cross, the price for this sin would be paid in full. And here we see perfect justice and mercy meet in Jesus Christ. Jesus shows mercy upon this woman, forgiving her her sin, but he also shows perfect and complete justice as he will pay the price her sin demands. John would reflect the same justified mercy in his first epistle in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who confess their sins to God, seeking his forgiveness and salvation, will find those sins forgiven. And as John says in this verse, and as we see in, in the, the, the account before us today, God is, justify, or God is faithful to do that for us. That means he does it. But in so doing, he is also justified in doing that because Jesus Christ paid the price. That's justice and mercy meeting together. Jesus calls her then, not only to new life in himself through forgiveness of her sin, not only to this this eternal salvation, but he also calls her to an ongoing relationship with himself in this last statement. Did you notice what he said? He said here, go and sin no more. Jesus is calling her to abandon her sinful lifestyle and instead live for him. He has shown himself to be the fulfillment of the law. And that fulfillment of the law has then its own expectations. 
As the great commentator Warren Wiersbe said, nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. Jesus has, we've clearly seen this woman is guilty. She's been convicted of her sin, but now, although she was convicted in the most literal sense by the law, she has been shown the highest form of love in the mercy of Jesus who would bear her sin on himself. And so therefore, she has been given new life and a new calling. The only way she can go and live for God, right? This idea of leaving a lifestyle of sin instead of living for God, what Jesus meant here by sin no more, is through a continued relationship with Jesus. Through a, through a continued trust in him. And the same is true in our lives today. Jesus paid the price for your sin on the cross, and he offers you new eternal life in himself. But this, and this is only available through faith in him. There is no one else, there is no system, there is no person, there are no works that you can do to outweigh your guilt. But Jesus Christ paid the price and offers you mercy. And when you trust in him, he now calls you to new life. And like the call to the woman that day, the call to you is the same. Live for his Glory, live in his power, and live in blessed obedience to him. And what Jesus does is he makes us righteous before God. He declares us righteous because he gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. Revelation speaks of the devil, Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses even Christians before God, saying, look at these people who, you, you saved them, they still sin. That sin was paid for in Jesus Christ. My friend, you can enjoy peace with God through Jesus today. If you have never trusted in him, you can find that peace in him today. And Christian, you can live out that peace in your life through obedience to God with the help of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus alone possesses all power and authority as God to show mercy on sinners, justifying them before the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, is the embodiment of mercy, grace, compassion, justice, and all other attributes of God. He related these things to all that he came in contact with here on this earth, and he continues to show them to us today. Sin condemns us to eternal separation from God, but Jesus paid the price for our sin. And this week, we will remember the death and resurrection of Jesus as we prepare to celebrate Easter. He did this for you. He took your place. He paid the price of your sin. He took on your judgment in order that you may be declared right with God. And his mercy is justified in your life because he did what you could not. He fulfilled God's law and gave himself as the spotless, perfect lamb of God. And as I have said, if you have never trusted him with your eternal soul, today is the day. And if you have, my friend, you are a child of God. 
God's children then are called to live for the glory of the kingdom of God. Understand this, being a disciple is more than going to church. It's more than reading your Bible. It's living your entire life for the glory of God. And today, Jesus charges you with the same charge he gave to the woman, live for me. Live for him. Sin should no longer have dominion over your life because of his power. And here on earth, Christians, we're still going to battle sin. But we can, with the Holy Spirit's help, see victory and growth in our lives to live ever more for God's glory. So let us live in such a way and reflect the justified mercy of Jesus from our lives to others around us. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the few minutes we've had today to study your word together. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his finished work of redemption on the cross. Lord, even as he stood there that day before the crowd, before the woman, before the enemies, and even though this work, he had not gone to the cross, the work was already finished. And he declared her forgiven. And Lord, we ask that today, you would convict our own hearts of sin. You would help us to see that in you there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is peace, there is life. Lord, I do pray again for the soul of one who is here today who has never trusted you with their eternity, has never declared you the Lord of their life and their Savior, that you would draw them to yourself today. You would give them the courage and the boldness and the clarity to see who you are. That there is life in you, the Son of God. For Christians here today, I pray that you would continue to convict us of our sin. Lord, conviction is not a wonderful thing. It is is something that hurts. It is something that brings us again face to face with, even as believers, that we have sin that we struggle with. But help us to welcome that conviction as an expression of, of your love in our lives. Give us the grace to make these things right and live for you. We ask that you would be with us now as we close our service. Help us now to honor you and the things that we have left to do. Your name we pray.